I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was a hot, sunny day on the Missouri River. And Lewis and Clark were on the riverbank, stretching their legs while most of their men crewed the large rowing boat. And Toussaint Charbonneau steered the pirogue holding all the expedition's essential equipment and supplies. As he wiped his brow, Meriwether Lewis tried to remember why he had given the Quebecan translator such an important task. He was a timid waterman at best, and prone to panic at worst. His teenage wife was a far steadier mind, but she wasn't strong enough to steer, given the strength of the river. Besides, she had her newborn to contend with, and that was enough responsibility for anyone. A feeling struck him, one of worry and dread. He knew that storms with high winds could swoop in at any moment. And, sure enough, the beating sun was now covered with dark, thick cloud, and the tops of the trees began to sway in the wind. Suddenly a huge gust struck the boats, striking them amidships, raising one side out of the water and threatening to capsize them. But this was not their first rodeo, and all the coxswains began to turn their boats into the wind to mitigate this threat. Or except Charbonneau, who panicked and steered in the opposite direction. As the rest of the corps looked on in horror, the pirogue began to tip over. The Shoshone woman leapt over to the rising side to try and force it down, but it was too late. The boat was teetering over and threatened to tip all the expedition's supplies and equipment into the fast-moving current. All of their instruments, their papers, books and medicines and training goods were at threat of beginning to float away. Charbonneau was flailing. He couldn't swim. His wife, by contrast, remained dead calm. She had grown up on a river just like this one. The water held no fear for her. But she knew how important all the supplies and equipment were to the expedition. So she scrambled around, her baby still on her back, picking everything he could reach and stowing them back in the boat, while everyone else tried to right it. When everything was calm and Charbonneau had calmed down, Lewis berated him, accusing him of cowardice and stupidity. He had nearly caused the end of the expedition. After coming all this way, they would have had to have turned back, and all because he couldn't handle a bit of wind. To his wife, though, Lewis reserved special praise. He rarely thought of her, except perhaps to wonder why she had wanted to bring a newborn on this journey. But now he looked on her with newfound respect. A few days later, they passed a small river that joined the Missouri. And, in honour of her bravery, he named it the Sacagawea. 
Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 3.16, Sacagawea, A Journey to the Past. Last time, we introduced the Core of Discovery's key members, including their most famous member, Sacagawea. We learned about her early childhood, her capture by a rival Indian tribe, her marriage to the much older Quebecan trader Toussaint Charbonneau, and how she came to be a member of the Corps of Discovery. Today, we will see what she did on that journey, and how she helped make it such a legendary success. But first, you may notice that we are motoring through this season. This is the seventh of the ten folk heroine stories we'll be telling this season, which means it's time to start thinking about what comes next. As always, I will leave it up to my patrons on Patreon to decide what we cover. I don't like to present the same topics twice in a row, so I will have three new options for you to consider. I'm still finalising what they are though, so keep an eye out on the notification from Patreon that a post has gone live. I'll give you plenty of time to vote, and I'll let you know what you need to do in the next episode. Now of course, to have your say, you will need to become a patron. To do that, go to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast and sign up. You get to support the show and influence what I get to read for the next year or so. What more could you wish for? But now, it's time to get back to the Missouri River and our American folk heroine, Sacagawea. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. What do we think the men of the Corps of Discovery thought of Sacagawea as she boarded the boat and headed west with them in the spring of 1805? Sadly, we don't know much because she is so rarely mentioned in the journals kept by Lewis Clark and their men. That in itself says something. If she was an absolute liability or nuisance, she surely would have become a feature of their musings. Her husband, Toussaint Charbonneau, was a frequent source of annoyance to them, and he wasn't held responsible for the caring of a baby. Sacagawea would have been responsible for feeding, changing, and washing their newborn, as well as keeping him entertained, calm, and safe. Nowhere in any of their journals is there any mention of the baby crying or keeping the men up at night. It speaks highly of her skills as a mother. So, in the absence of specifics, we'll have to broaden out to the general American perceptions of Indian women at this time. What is interesting is that their perception was very different from that of Indian men. Males were seen as brutal, violent and sadistic, tying into the wild frontier land they lived in like a Bronte novel. The women, on the other hand, were somewhat fetishised. They were seen as beautiful and dutiful, kind and alluring. In an 1833 edition of the magazine Goody Lady's Book, a feature article, accompanied by a picture which depicted a Native American woman, described her this way, quote, It is difficult to imagine a prettier picture. Her slight and delicate hands were crossed upon her bosom. Her long, glossy black hair was fastened back behind her head so as to show the beautiful contour of her face and bust. Her features were small and exquisitely regular, 
and her eyes, the loveliest in the world, were beaming with the very soul of gentle kindness. This rather glamorous depiction was at odds with the description of men in the magazine, who were described as beating their wives, selling their daughters into marriage or slavery, or even prostituting them out for a night to make a quick buck. This led to a somewhat white saviour mentality, where American men felt that they needed to protect these women from their own kind. But there was something else too, something equally problematic but less well-intentioned. The notion of native or Aboriginal women in colonial societies as being loose, oversexed temptresses is sadly a pretty universal phenomena, and the American frontier did not escape it. These women were culturally and physically different from the white women whom the colonists of the Americas had grown up with, and this led to a certain stereotype emerging. We'll talk about it later, but this was a major theme of the 1955 film about the Lewis and Clark expedition, Far Horizons, where Lewis, played by Charlton Heston, romance Sacagawea, played by Donna Reed. So, it's fair to say that the members of the expedition would have been fairly well disposed towards Sacagawea in general, but it is equally clear that she more than earned their respect right from the off. On just day three of the expedition, Lewis wrote that she, quote, busied herself in searching for the wild artichokes which the mice collect and deposit in large hordes. We also know that she, Clark and her husband, often would spend their days walking them on the shore rather than in the boats. One imagines this would have felt a lot safer than travelling with her baby in a rickety canoe. She could also gather food on these walks, including some licorice plant, which sounds incredibly Moorish, on a long hike. In other entries, he mentions her bringing berries and other fruits. This knowledge of flora and fauna really endeared her to the men on the expedition, who otherwise solely subsisted on biscuits and game. What must have confused the hell out of her, though, was their weird aversion to fish. She had grown up on the Salmon River, on a steady diet of fish, but the men always complained when they had it for dinner rather than buffalo. It was treated as a meal of last resort, whereas for her, it had been a staple. At night, she and her husband slept in the same teepee tent as Lewis and Clark, which I'm sure was preferable to spending it with the other soldiers. But equally, it must have been hard for her. She knew that the men were tired. I mean, she was as well, of course. And the last thing that any of them wanted was to be kept up all night by a screaming newborn. I don't know what witchcraft she used, but the fact that their journals weren't full of complaints about baby screaming is frankly baffling. She must have been one hell of a comforting mother. But what she also brought was her local knowledge. They were now entering the area around which she grew up, and she knew these lands well. She told them about local microclimates, for instance one place where it never rained so they would need to stock up on water, and the local customs of the tribes they came across. In one, for example, she was able to tell them the camp was abandoned as they had left red cloth behind as an offering to the gods. She also helped protect them from mosquitoes. They were a daily torture for everyone on the expedition, and their journals are full of complaints about biting insects. Native Americans protected themselves from bites by covering exposed skin with mud, and it's likely that she used this remedy for herself and her baby, while recommending her companions do the same. While well, the first month or so of the journey went pretty smoothly, with Sacagawea's help, it wasn't all plain sailing. They were now entering the upper reaches of the Missouri, 
and this is full of swift currents, waterfalls, and razor-sharp rocks. The winds began to pick up, and storms would sweep in at great speed without warning. The episode that I related in the introduction, where Charbonneau's incompetent boating skills saw a boat nearly capsize, took place on the 14th of May, and the only reason all the expedition's most essential supplies and equipment were saved was thanks to Sacagawea. This was where she proved her worth, not only as a source of local knowledge, but as a cool head in a crisis. Although you might have expected the weather to get calmer and warmer in June, the Corps actually ran into something of a cold snap. It was freezing with icy winds and intermittent rain. Sounds a lot like home, to be fair. Many in the party came down with illness, but none worse than Sacagawea. It's unclear if it was the weather, or consuming bad water and spoiled meat, or perhaps a combination of these, but whatever it was, she was very ill. Lewis, who was struck down by illness as well, but not to the same extent, described the symptoms thusly, quote, I was taken with such violent pain in the intestines that I was unable to partake of the Feast of Marabones. My pain still increased, and towards evening was attended with a high fever, finding myself unable to march. Describing what happened to Sacagawea, Clark wrote on the 11th of June, quote, The Indian woman became very sick. I bled her, which appeared to be of great service to her. The next day he wrote, quote, The interpreter's wife is very sick, worse than she has been. I gave her medicine. Unfortunately, it would be many decades before bleeding was finally debunked as a cure for all illnesses, and this treatment would likely have only made things worse. The expedition's concern for her health is clear in the entries of its other members as well. Private Joseph Whitehouse wrote, quote, Our interpreter's wife got very sick, and great care was taken of her, knowing what a great loss she would be if she died. She is our only interpreter for the Snake Indians, who reside in those mountains lying west of us, and from whom we expect assistance in prosecuting our voyage. For the next few days, we see further entries describing how sick she was. On the 14th of June, Clark wrote, quote, The Indian woman complained all night and excessively bad this morning. Her case is somewhat dangerous. The following day, Lewis expressed concern for the viability of the mission and the survival of her child should she die, while Clark went on his favourite topic of blaming her husband. Quote, The Indian woman, very bad, and will take no medicine whatever, until her husband, finding her out of her senses, easily prevailed on her to take medicine. If she dies, it will be the fault of her husband. Happily, on the 17th of June, about six days into her illness, Sacagawea showed signs of improvement. Quote, The Indian woman, much better today. I have continued the same course of medicine. She is free from pain, clear of fever, her pulse regular, and eats as heartily as I am willing to permit her of broiled buffalo, well seasoned with pepper and salt, and rich soup of the same meat. I think, therefore, that there is every rational hope of her recovery. By the next day, she was up on her feet and as right as rain. I quoted this section from Lewis at length, and it's one of the most detailed day-to-day coverage we have of Sacagawea, and it's interesting for a few reasons. The first, I've discussed before, is that they resolutely refuse to call her by her name. If we're being generous, it could be because they couldn't spell it, but then again, as anyone who has read the journals will know, spelling is not their strong suit. Now, she was not alone in this. Charbonneau was often referred to as the interpreter, 
and the slave York as the Negro. But both of them are also referred to by name far more than Sacagawea. With only a very few exceptions that I have found, Sacagawea is rarely referred to by name, more commonly in relation to her belonging to something or someone else, her race, her husband. Given the apparent affection they had for her and the disdain they had for Charbonneau, this really shows how lowly they viewed the status of Indians. The second is how critical they saw her to the mission. There is discussion here that should she die, they might have to turn back. As we shall see, they were depending on her to pass through the Rocky Mountains. And if they couldn't do that, they had no hope of reaching the Pacific. Others got sick on this trip, but except for Lewis and Clark, none got the level of coverage of their illness. Now, this might be because hers was a particularly notable case, but still, it's notable. And finally, it's worth acknowledging Sacagawea in all of this. The Corps hadn't stopped while she was lying infirm. She was suffering from probably the worst fever of her life while in a boat with a bunch of dudes travelling through the unknown and likely still responsible for a newborn. The boat would have been rocking, the smell disgusting and the baby noisy. And yet she pulled through. She really is a remarkable young woman. It was just as well, though, that Sacagawea had recovered, as the core of discovery was about to start the most challenging part of the journey so far, an 18-mile ascent of the Rocky Mountains. This section of the river was full of dangerous rapids and tall waterfalls, so they needed to build wagons and, with only manpower as horsepower, haul them upriver. Sacagawea likely would have been excused the manual labour, but she was there for the scariest bit. On one day, a massive storm rolled through, and the water level rose sharply. Clark wrote, quote, The rain fell like one volley of water falling from the heavens, and gave us only time to get out of the way of a torrent of water which was pouring down the hill in the ravine with immense force, tearing everything before it, taking with it large rocks and mud. I took my gun and shot pouch in my left hand, and with the right scrambled up the hill, pushing the interpreter's wife, who had with her the child in her arms, before me. The interpreter himself making attempts to pull up his wife by the hand, much scared and nearly without motion. Just a quick sidebar, I do love how Clark can't get through any story without a dig at Charbonneau. He really thought he was useless. He continues, quote, We at length reached the top of the hill safe, where I found my servant in search of us greatly agitated for our welfare. I directed the party to return to the camp at the run as fast as possible to get to our load, where clothes could be got to cover the child whose clothes were all lost. The woman, who was but just recovering from a severe indisposition, was wet and cold. I was fearful of a relapse. I caused her, as also the others of the party, to take a little spirits, which my servant had in a canteen, which revived them very much. By the end of June, though, they had passed this tricky section, and were reaching the end of the Missouri River, and were approaching the Continental Divide. This was the moment Sacagawea had been waiting for, as it was time for her to see her people, and maybe even her family, for the first time since she had been taken. She was coming home.
In late July, the Corps of Discovery entered Shoshone country. They were now in present-day Montana, a couple of hundred miles away from where she had grown up, but it was still an area that she knew well. Her people would travel this way while on hunts, and she knew there was a settlement ahead at a place called Three Forks. This was where three rivers, later named by the expedition as the Jefferson, Madison and Gallatin, converged to form the mighty Missouri. One can imagine Sacagawea regaling the Corps with stories of her upbringing, her pointing out places she had visited as a child, and information about her tribe. The 30th of July was a particularly emotional day, as they camped right next to where Sacagawea had been taken as a child. She must have told them the story over the campfire, as two expedition members recorded it in their journals. The most detailed of these was by John Ordway. Quote, We dined at a camp where the Snake Indians had been camped four years ago and was attacked by the Hidatsa. Two or three of the Snake Nation was killed, and several squaws were taken prisoners. Our interpreter's wife was one of them. She tells us that she was taken in the middle of the river as she was crossing at a shallow place to make her escape. The rest all mounted their horses and cleared themselves, as they did not wish to fight, neither were they strong enough for the Hidatsa. This was all written in a very matter-of-fact tone, and neither writer mentioned Sacagawea's emotional state as she related the story, but one imagines it wasn't exactly a happy retelling. This had been the point where her life had been heroically changed, where she began the long journey that had finally brought her back to that very spot. Let's remember that she was still very young, only 17 years old, and yet she had experienced so much in that time. In many ways, the next few weeks would be, in the word of Anastasia, a journey to the past. The Corps elected to travel up the Jefferson, and over the next few days, journal entries are littered with little snippets of memory from Sacagawea. For example, on the 8th of August, she pointed out her people's summer camp in the distance. Lewis wrote, quote, The Indian woman recognised the point of a high plain to our right, which she informed us was not very distant from the summer retreat of her nation on a river beyond the mountains which runs to the west. This hill, she says, her people calls the beaver's head, from a conceived resemblance of its figure to the the head of an animal. She assures us that we shall either find her people on this river or on the river immediately west of its source, which, from its present size, cannot be very distant. He went off with a small party to seek out the Shoshone, leaving Sacagawea and most of the party behind. I do find it a little curious that they didn't bring her along, since her relationship with the Shoshone was considered crucial, but it was likely because they wanted to travel fast and light. Lewis had been worried for a few weeks that they were not making quick enough progress, and wanted to move things along as fast as possible. After a couple of days, this party encountered the Shoshone, and a few days after were welcomed into their camp. Their chief, Kamirwait, set up an elaborate welcoming ceremony, but it was clear that they were in bad shape. They had recently been raided by a neighbouring tribe and didn't have much food. Lewis invited him and a few others to come back to meet the rest of the corps. When he returned, it was to a somewhat tense atmosphere. Charbonneau had struck Sacagawea at dinner one night for reasons unexplained, and Clark had severely reprimanded him for it. As I said before, a husband hitting his wife was sadly not uncommon in this period, 
but both Clark and Lewis, once he had been filled in, mentioned it in their journals. Charbonneau was clearly a violent man, and perhaps he was jealous of the fact that his teenage wife was of far more use to the expedition than he was. This is only speculation on my part, as sadly we're not furnished with the facts. But he won't be the first or last husband to feel emasculated by a more successful wife and resort to brute force. Despite this incident, Sacagawea must have been filled with nervous excitement at the prospect of meeting some of her people. But when she first caught sight of them, she was absolutely floored, because standing before her, dressed in the regalia of a chieftain, was her brother. Lewis described the meeting as being, quote, really affecting, not just at the reuniting of brother and sister, but also between Sacagawea and a childhood friend, who had also been captured at the same time, but had managed to escape. The Corps and the Shoshone exchanged tokens of friendship, including those silver tokens they had been given by President Jefferson, and then they got down to brass tacks. Sacagawea had proven so useful and resourceful on the trip so far, but this was the reason she had been brought for this very negotiation. The Americans wanted information on the country ahead of them and horses to help them reach the Columbia River. Sacagawea's brother Kamirwait, in return, wanted weapons and ammunition for hunting and for defence against the raiders that had been plaguing his people. Through Sacagawea, Lewis told him that he couldn't do that. He needed all his weapons for the journey. Why he hadn't brought spares as gifts is anyone's guess, though. Perhaps they had been lost on the way. He did, however, offer to bring them weapons another time. He also explained the point of the journey, which was to, quote, to penetrate the country as far as the ocean to the west of them, to find out a more direct way to bring merchandise to them. That as, no trade could be carried on with them before our return to our homes. It was mutually advantageous to them, as well as to ourselves, that they should render us at such aids as they had it in their power to furnish it, in order to hasten our voyage and, of course, our return home. The Shoshone had not brought enough horses with them, and so left with Clark to pick them up and bring them back to the camp. Meanwhile, Sacagawea had another, less pleasant reunion. Apparently, before her capture, she had been promised to another Shoshone man, and he had been selected to stay with the corps as a goodwill gesture while they waited for the horses. Lewis wrote that, quote, He was more than double her age and had two other wives. He claimed her as his wife, but said that, as she had had another child by another man, who was Charbonneau, that he didn't want her. My goodness, what a charming man. Once they were all back together again, her brother and some of the Shoshones agreed to accompany them north to another camp where they could get more horses. All the way there, Sacagawea acted as translator for Lewis and Kamirwait, as they bartered and haggled for information, weapons and horses. On the 25th of August, Sacagawea heard some disturbing information from the Shoshones. Apparently, they had sent a runner north to the camp to which they were heading, telling them to travel towards them. The whole tribe was moving south into Buffalo country, but this was really bad news for the Corps, as it would leave them without horses. Sacagawea told her husband to tell Lewis, but ever the useless idiot, he neglected to do so for several hours, wasting precious time. When he found out, Lewis exploded at Charbonneau. He wrote, quote, I was out of patience with the folly of Charbonneau, 
who had not sufficient sagacity to see the consequences which would inevitably flow from such movement of the Indians. And although he had been in possession of this information since early in the morning, when it had been communicated to him by his Indian woman, Sacagawea, yet he never mentioned it until the afternoon. I could not forbear speaking to him with some degree of asperity on this occasion. Luckily, the message was withdrawn in time. The second time, the Sacagawea had saved the day. And it is there that I will leave you for this week. Next time, we will see Sacagawea and the Corps of Discovery reach the Pacific Ocean and begin their long journey home. And then we'll go on to discover how Sacagawea became one of the best-known women in American history. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.